0: First, you think, is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Lord, who can be trusted with power? Those with a passion for justice, who speak the truth from their hearts, who see the wretched as their family and the poor as their flesh and blood. They alone are worthy of the people's trust. Their compassion lights up the whole earth. So who will you be voting for? What candidates, what ballot issues up or down, what values, conviction, deepest belief, and wildest dream shimmers just inside that X that you mark on your ballot. Every year at this time, I remember, and maybe you do too, the first time I voted, and also further back, way further back, going as a child with my mother to the polls. In New York, where I grew up, the schools were all closed on election day. It was a holiday, and my mother got a little dressed up and put me in my Sunday shoes. It felt important. I felt important and solemn standing next to her in the booth with its blue curtain. And I have a memory of her bending down to show me her marked ballot, which I knew to be a secret, sacred thing. Many, many years later, 50 years later, half a century, I was with my mother to renew her driver's license, actually to get it changed to a non-driving photo ID because she was 97. This was in Florida a few years ago. And some rule had just been changed down there so that for some reason they had to start all over with my mom asking her, when were you born? Where were you born? Even though she had in her hand her still valid license. And she said, 1922, London. And they said that to get a new ID now, she'd have to show her immigration documents. Florida. That's ridiculous. I said, she's been a citizen for more than 60 years. But they said, blah, blah, homeland security, blah, 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 bureaucracy, blah, 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 immigrants. And my mother said, thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow. And I thought, that is so not going to happen. We're going to be lost for the rest of her life and possibly mine in this hideous Floridian nightmare spiral of bureaucratic doom. But there at home, in her desk, in the top drawer with her grocery list and a card for an upcoming dental appointment, and all her current bills, right on top, this yellow hand- typed document, her citizen, her certificate of naturalization, the seal of the court hereunto affixed in the year of our Lord nineteen fifty seven and the year of our independence, the one hundred and eighty second Apparently, they used to note on such documents how many years it had been since the Revolutionary War, war she actually lost. She said, when I asked, "She just liked to keep that paper close at hand, told me she thought about it a lot, especially in recent years, with immigration in the news, and she said, "I'm not afraid. look at me." But she thought about people who were. She thought about that a lot. And she was still humbly amazed at her luck coming here after the war, starting again as a young woman on her own, what it meant to her to have that chance, how grateful she still was to be here, even in Florida. She would kept it all this time in a prominent place, pondering her privilege, the luck of the draw that places every one of us where we happen to be. So the clerk at Motor Vehicle was duly surprised the next day when she brought that in. And I think of those election days when she took me with her and her gloves and hat and how she really believed it was an honor to vote, to participate, to be a citizen. How she taught me this and my father, what it means to love a country. This is a harrowing time. Harrowing. As you know, is what happens when farmland, a tender strip of unturned sod is ripped open by the rake or the plow and left exposed to the elements. This feels like a harrowing time as if our country has been torn to shreds, as if in recent weeks, months, years, everything important, everything worthy and precious, everything we need has been ransacked and ruined, trashed beyond repair, maybe white supremacy has always existed and to some extent defined us as a country so far. But in most of our lifetimes, most of our lives, it's been lurking underneath in the subliminal shadows and the toxic shallows. It's not been sanctioned right out loud. This is changing now. The premise of white supremacy and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia, xenophobia has never been as articulate and as proud and coast-to-coast persuasive, casually accepted and expected as it is now. So it's a canny and effective shift to normalization. And there's not a light of daylight between a campaign speech at some southern or northern, or rural, or urban, or midwestern whistle-stop. Not a great deal of distance between a few well-chosen vicious words and a full-on insurrection. Not a lot of light between a tweet, a lie, and somebody with a hammer fracturing the skull of an 82-year-old husband of the Speaker of the House. And proud that he did it, with plans to do more, and elected officials cheering him on. This is a harrowing time when our conscience, our consciousness have been ripped wide open and exposed. And the only way to hold it, at least for me, the only way I can hold it is to somehow believe that with the harrowing comes the sowing. And that seeds will be planted all across this country in our time that these days will strengthen us to flourish and we will show by showing up for each other that love is stronger than fear, that love, in fact, will win, if not in this election, then the next one, and like trees planted by water, we shall not be moved. How to Love a Country is the title of a book of poems brought out by Richard Blanco, the second inaugural poet for President Obama, gay, immigrant, Latinx voice of our people. We are the dead, he says, and we're the living amid the flicker of vigil candlelight. We're the promise of one people, one breath, declaring to one another, I see you, I need you, I am you. But are we? And how do you love a country if you're pretty sure that probably half of the people in it, maybe more, stand for something you don't even recognize? How do you love your own country if you're afraid in it right now? If you're pretty sure the vast numbers of your neighbors now are living in their minds and hearts in their houses right next door in a completely different nation, that they're in fact hell-bent on overthrowing yours. Richard Blanco talks about America with this breathtaking sympathy, this gritty, tender sympathy. It's so visceral. It's so intimate. You can feel the kitchen chair against your legs or the saggy cushions of the couch and the calloused hands of the farmer and the fine imported wool of the executive suit. We are a mother's instant potatoes at the checkout, A black teenager who talked too much or too little or moved too fast or not fast enough were the guilt and the grief of the cop who wished he hadn't shot. Ask a person what this country, this far from perfect union is about, what it stands for, what it means, and they'll tell you about sympathy and empathy freedom tempered by compassion, justice by mercy, this ever-widening, unfolding understanding of pluralism and democracy. Ask someone else, and they'll start with the free market, with money, which might mean greed and might just mean survival. You have to ask the next question, be in relationship. And someone else will speak in barely-coded terms about crime, and law and order, and good neighborhoods, good schools, and who belongs in them, and who belongs in jail, or on the far side of a wall that they long to see from sea to shining sea. They'll speak or shout or tweet about a golden age when America was great, meaning what? Meaning white. A moment which has never existed when the country was simply, simplistically, sufficiently great. Great is a promise under construction. It's a theory. It's actually a summons. It's a dream, and it's a dare. What story do we dare imagine? What story do we tell ourselves as a people, as a country? There's no politics that's not identity politics. You root for your team You vote for your tribe, you defend the interests of your family, but then the question is, who exactly is that? And how wide can your arms extend around your relatives? The founders and the framers, white men all, many of them traffickers and slaves, started with a chapter. This bloody, hypocritical, imperfect, unfinished chapter that left the black people they had captured and raped and tortured out of the story. And the native people they murdered and removed, out of the story. And the poor who own no land, out of the story. And all women, out of the story. But somehow, despite their racist limitations, those brilliant white men drafted a drafty thing, the Constitution, through which light could shine, both through what was said and what was left unsaid. And their wild experiment, never intended to include everybody, but in their genius and in their inadvertent error the framers built a frame made sort of in spite of themselves a living document to be understood anew in every generation a more perfect union would make more perfect sense they opened an unimagined unprecedented kind of possibility about what it means to make and be and love a country who is created Equal. What exactly is self evident? Say it plain, said Langston Hughes in Harlem at the turn of the 20th century. America never was American to me, but America shall be. Black Lives Matter said three brilliant queer young women of color at the turn of the 21st century, echoing Hughes and Baldwin and Douglas and Tubman and Wheatley, and even in a way, Jefferson and even in a way, Jesus. Life is sacred, lives are not for wasting. And if your name or the names of your relatives, your beautiful, beloved family, don't appear in the original version of the story and are not held in reverence now, then we will grab our own pen and our own parchment, our own ballots, and we'll tell a different, better, more patriotic story. We will draft it by hand and then hand it to our children along with stern instruction that it is their right and duty and their sacred honor to revise it as they grow and make a world most of us won't live to see. That's what's happened all along. A couple of years ago in a class for new members, just like the one that Birch held yesterday and last week, someone new to the congregation I was serving then asked what I mean when I use the word prophetic, when I talk about the prophetic church. You could tell they were getting a little nervous about talk like that. And it is a strange way to talk. It's a churchy, old-fashioned, vaguely biblical, and therefore suspect way to talk. What does prophetic actually mean, said this person, rightly so. Nothing to do with prophecy, at least not crystal ball prophecy. But I do have in mind those wild and ragged, half-crazed prophets ranting through the pages of the ancient Hebrew Bible, Michael, Micah, Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah, calling down destruction on the wicked nations, not just on the heads of tyrants, but on the people, complicit in their love of comfort and complacency. Walter Brueggemann, the great biblical historian, says the prophets were more than just inconvenient troublemakers screeching their screeds through the streets by naming without flinching or apology what was so plainly there to see. Corruption, lies, oppression, cruelty, arrogance, ignorance, greed, They called the people back to covenants they had strayed from, promises they'd made to God about the kind of people they meant to be, and promises they'd made to one another. The prophets called the people back to their intention, to their soul's own home. What does the Lord require? Not just an occasional victory or a sporadic and trendy good cause, But justice that is as pervasive as the air you breathe and the water you swim in, like an ever flowing stream, said Amos. Justice tempered with compassion and not with a sweet, treacly, Iowa nice kind of kindness, Minnesota nice up where I live, which is even worse, but a radical, is there a hierarchy of state nice? I don't know. But not that, a radical love for humanity, not just the people you like but all of them, without exception, and walk in humbleness, not timidity, not a safe, complicit silence, but with a radically courageous, humble willingness to listen and learn and listen some more to opinions and wisdom you did not make up yourself, a humble openness to the stories and experience and sorrow and longing of other people. The prophets just roared through the cities, gently, not gently, reminding You're better than this. You mean to be better than this. Even if it's not yet actually happened, your nation is better than this. And in that way, they spoke not doom, but hope. The prophetic church stands in that tradition, even a church like this one, no longer tightly tethered to the Bible. We stand in that tradition, the religious left, always with one foot in the world as it is, plainly, tragically is, and the other planted firmly in the world that yet shall be, a shared, unfolding history, evolving history of brokenness and hope. It is so hard now it is so frustrating painful bewildering to try to talk to or even to read posts from relatives, friends, coworkers, neighbors, who seem to live on another planet across a grand canyon of political division, right? It is not a normal time when well-meaning red Republicans and well-meaning blue Democrats are all just gonna sit down at Thanksgiving two weeks from three weeks from now and just forget their differences. Good people on both sides, as a former president said about a murderous racist mob in Charlottesville. You can't cancel them, your friends, your family, your neighbors, because there's too much love in you for it. You love them. But you can't go ranting like a righteous prophet all over them either, spilling the gravy, reposting, retweeting, clever, bitter memes. We know that's lazy. We know it won't help. And we also know we can't or shouldn't be quiet, that silence is definitely easier. But in these times, silence means betrayal of something deep and maybe holy. We're called to speak our truth in love. We don't know how to do it. And part of why we come to church is to help each other figure out how we're going to do it, how we're going to face Thanksgiving and all the days beyond. We're called to bring the full force of our faith, and by faith, I mean love, and by love, I mean the fiercest allegiance to what you most deeply know. I'm not a Christian, not even a theist in any way that real theists would accept or recognize, but this moment we're in now is calling us to bring to bear in public the full force of our faith, one by one and all together in these ever-expanding and sometimes unlikely circles of resistance. Normally, I'm nervous whenever religion weasels its way into politics. We've seen what kinds of mischief, sometimes lethal mischief, ensues when people smuggle their gods and their fears and their homophobia and racism and their school prayers and God knows what else into our courtrooms and policy and laws. But in the days ahead and the years beyond, we have to bring to bear the full force of our faith, our love not doctrine, not theology, but conscience, the seed of morality that was planted in you as a child and nurtured along all this time, talking about the light within, the spark of divinity that connects us to each other and to everyone and the living earth and the holy. That is light that's made to shine, and we have to risk believing the shadows aren't going to overcome it. All politics Is identity politics? It's about with whom you identify. The story we're telling to ourselves about ourselves as a country is a troubled but evolving story. It's a brave open book. And if we tell it right, it is. The history of the people's courage, the people's solidarity across and because of their amazing, intersecting, interdependent identities. It could be a story of redemption and hope and resistance, resilience, reparations, right relationship to water and land and each other. It's not about making America great. It's about making something beautiful and true with liberty and justice and equity and compassion and shining hope for everybody. On Tuesday, I will go to the polls in St. Paul with my daughter and my daughter-in-law and their little baby, and he'll be in his backpack on my back, and he'll be so thrilled because we're all gonna give him our stickers. (laughs) And it's about what he understands about democracy. I get all the stickers. And I'll show him my ballot. And I'll tell him what a sacred, secret, fragile thing it is. And I'll tell him how proud his great-grandmother would have been to see him in that place.